Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Well, good morning. Thank you for that Adam greeting. I suppose we all miss Adam right about now. Uh, Maybe no one more than myself. Um, But actually, I figure at this point in my life, when the preacher's out of town, I should be able to stand in front of my friends and family for a few minutes and share some thoughts from Scripture that have been on my mind and hopefully be of of, uh, encouragement to us. Happy Mother's Day. Mom, if you're watching, happy Mother's Day. I love you. This morning, I want us to ask together an old question. What does the Lord require of you? This question has been asked for a very long time. Jimmy Carter old, in fact. Uh, Any of you remember that? On his inauguration day, a cold January 1977, he took the oath of office with his hand on a Bible that his mother had given him, and it was open to the passage that asks this question. The prophet Micah asked this question around 700 B.C. And before that, Moses asked this question as the children of Israel were poised to finally go into the promised land without him. I think you can go all the way back to the first brothers in human history. I think they asked this question as they approached God to offer their sacrifices. What does the Lord require of you? And since that time of Cain and Abel, the question has been asked by virtually everybody, billions of people, and it's been answered in lots of different ways. Some, I'm sure, have been uh, basically correct, and some have been dead wrong. This question, in my opinion, should be tied for first place in importance the most important question we can ask. What does the Lord require of me? Have you asked yourself this question? I know that you have. In fact, if I'm interpreting the Apostle Paul correctly, virtually everybody who's ever lived, even the pagans, even the heathen, ask this question. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writes that when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Notice this, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What is that? I think it's them asking this question. 
What does the Lord require of me? What does the God, the gods as I understand them to be, what do they expect of me? And they are talking to themselves. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, about whether or not they are living up to what the Lord requires. What does the Lord require of me? We love simple answers to this question, do we not? And if they can be poetic or pithy and memorable, uh, all the better. We in this room, I'm sure, um, certainly go to the scriptures for our answer to this question. But I do wonder, and I wonder if you wonder with me about this, uh, I do wonder when I'm answering this question how much I may be influenced by my surroundings, influenced by my upbringing, by my habits, by my preferences, what I'd like the answer to be, by the larger American culture that I've been drinking from my whole life. There are some very popular answers to this question. By popular, I simply mean if you, you, you wouldn't have a hard time going out and finding a lot of people who would agree with, with these answers. Um, number one, and I, I think of this as the Marshall Gileana answer because uh, he preached a sermon. He's a friend of ours from up in northwest Indiana. He preached a sermon years and years ago. I don't remember much about the sermon, but I do remember this point he made which is his assessment of uh, the general public, world population uh, opinion about this is that pretty much as long as you're not a murderer, a terrorist, a rapist, a child molester, you're good. You'll be okay. A step up from there, uh, you need to be a good person. Have you heard that? Uh, does that answer factor into your answer at all? Of course, the definition of good person is as varied as there are uh, people, but essentially it boils down to more good than bad. Probably closer to our part of the world and our part of the country, you need to believe in Jesus. There's only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Unless you believe that I am he, you shall surely die in your sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Be a faithful Christian. And of course, our minds start thinking of passages that we could reference and cite. What does the Lord require of me? Perhaps some of these answers may resonate with you. We humans love simple answers generally about anything. Four keys to a healthier you. Now that's, that's what I want to hear about, right? Way better than reading health books and having to work at your diet and your exercise and your personal habits. Five easy steps to financial independence. Sign me up. 
way better than reading books about investing or budgeting. Six simple rules for a better marriage. Yeah, I'll take some of that. We much prefer those short, simple answers to hard questions. Certainly, we prefer those over the long, complicated, nuanced answers. And religion, that is man's effort to have a relationship with God, is certainly no different. I suppose it's been thousands of years now that Jewish rabbis have been studying and debating the Torah and writing and summarizing and explaining, trying to boil it down to its essence. Early church councils and creeds, you've heard of the Nicene Creed, 325, right? Greg, you know, you know the Nicene Creed, you got it memorized. Uh, Big council trying to boil down everything in the scriptures about God and who he is, the person of God. There was one of those in, uh, in scripture, uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. A lot of important people got together to decide an important question. Do you remember what the letter that was circulated said? One of the things it said? For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Let's boil it down. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. And these days, you can go to nearly any church website and you will find a page, a section, what we believe. Now, it's not everything we believe, but it's the very most important things, the fundamentals, the essentials. Some of these efforts, no doubt, are misguided or completely wrongheaded. Others, I'm sure, are helpful and good. The point is that from the earliest times of human history, we have not been very good at resisting the urge to create a systematic theology, a summary, a checklist of things that we can attend to in answer to the question, what does the Lord require of me? So we are drawn to passages of scripture that seem to boil it all down to one or two or a few things that we can focus on. They're simple things. Not easy. They're not easy, but they're simple. Like the passage in Micah that President Carter quoted from. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
We love passages like that, don't we? They're beautiful, and they boil it down for us. Or the, the other one, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, that Moses uh, said to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. I like the James passage. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And we can't leave off the Solomon summary in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This then is the conclusion of the whole matter, to fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. But there is a problem, isn't there, with these passages? Actually, there's no problem at all with the passages, of course. The problem, maybe, is with what we're hoping the passages will do for us, what they will provide to us. Picture this recent discussion among a group of teenagers. I was there. This really happened. The exercise was to identify the handful of the very most important Bible passages in terms of telling the overall story of the Bible. In other words, what would you pick out as the important passages of Scripture that are kind of like milestones, plot points, along the overarching whole story of the Bible, which is God's plan to save us from our sins. And one person opened up his Bible and read this and claimed that it was the most important. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. And just about as he closed the Bible, another person piped up and said, but what about repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? You can't leave that out. You see, when we read passages like this, the ones that boil it down so beautifully, so succinctly, and we say, yes. That's it. And especially when Jesus says, yes, that's it. Then the thought comes, well, there's also this other thing. I can't leave that out. And I've got to keep this in mind. What does the Lord require of me? Am I the only one who... I don't know if I ever say this out loud to myself. I certainly don't have it written down anywhere. But 
in my head at times are bouncing around these, these notions. God doesn't expect me to... Surely it's okay for me to, am I the only one here who can remember when he was very young and he thought about his future and he had a plan for his life and he said, you know, I'm going to go to college. I, I think an education is important. I'm going to get a degree that I can get a job that I want and I'm, I'm going to look for a lovely young lady, a Christian woman to marry, and we'd like to have children, and we'd like our children to be healthy, and we'd like to live in a reasonably nice home, have a Christian family, watch our kids grow up, maybe we can retire someday, enjoy some of the finer things of life. Am I the only one? I wonder if the assumptions that we have, the thoughts, the ideas along this line that we're walking around with, if they interfere with our answer to the question, what does the Lord require of me? Have you ever heard, uh, no one should ever have to bury their child? You think there's a lot of people that believe that? No one should ever have to care for their spouse for years who has a debilitating, life-sapping disease. America, good thing in America we don't have to worry about being persecuted. Anybody ever thought that? Well, apparently, um, God does expect some things that I don't think he expects. Apparently, uh, God expected Noah to work for 100 years to build an ark, to build a boat. And it was grand. Did you, have you ever been up to Kentucky to see it? It's spectacular. 100 years. And while he's working on it, by the way, he has to be preaching the whole time to a bunch of people who, aren't, who are making fun of him and not, not, not one of them listens. Apparently, God expected Abraham to wander around for decades without anything resembling what we would call a home. Apparently, God expected Sarah, at about 90 years old, to go through childbirth and to raise a baby. Expected Joseph to be separated from his family and his homeland. Suddenly, one day, he's just yanked away, sold into slavery, and he lives the rest of his life on this roller coaster in a strange land. Apparently, God expected David to run for his life for years as payment for him being a loyal, faithful servant to his king. And he expected Hosea to pluck a woman from prostitution to be his wife. 
and then have children by her, and then to keep pursuing her even after she goes back to be a prostitute. Apparently, God expected Ezekiel to lay out on the ground in the public square on only one side while tied up every day for more than a year while being mocked at, no doubt. And again, nobody listened. Apparently, God expected Esther to risk her life for her people. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Daniel, his three amigos, Moses, John the baptizer, the prophets, the judges, the apostles, countless martyrs. Apparently, God did expect them to be stoned, to be sawn in two, to be imprisoned. It's Mother's Day. Do you know that God expected a number of women to go barren for years? Apparently for really no other purpose other than so he could dramatically announce a special person. Watch mothers watch their children die. Apparently God has expected a lot of people to be poor, to be uncomfortable, to be ridiculed and persecuted. What does the Lord require of me? Consider the, the thief on the juxtaposed with the rich young ruler. You know the stories. If you were writing those stories, would they have ended the same way? If you were separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, now, the point of my question is not to challenge God. The point of my question is to challenge myself. You see, because here I am at age 53, having been a disciple of Jesus for 30-plus years, and I'm pretty sure that if I were making the decisions, a hardened criminal deserving of death who only a few moments before was ridiculing the Savior of the world, would not be saved simply merely on the basis of a genuine, penitent appeal of faith as he hung dying. Nor would a man who has lived a morally upright, not sinless, mind you, but generally holy and righteous life, be denied eternal life, because he couldn't bring himself to sell all his possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and leave his entire life behind to follow Jesus. I admit it. If I were drawing it up, those are not the decisions I would make. But I'm not saying God is wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. In fact, I'm emphatically saying that God is right, of course. And I'm confessing to God's glory that I am absolutely and completely wrong. But I am acknowledging I'm wrong. I don't see it that way. Still, after all this time, that's not the way I would draw it up. What does the Lord require of me? I don't think I've figured it out yet. 
The point is this. Maybe I should keep chewing on this question. What does the Lord require of me? And certainly, I should still be listening for his answer. What's the purpose of this exercise? Well, it's not to get you to question your faith. It's not. It's not to try to make you feel silly for having some favorite passages. Not at all. It's simply to provoke us to engage with this question. And if I could boil it down to its essence, what's the point? Number one, you need to be asking this question. I need to be asking this question still. And pursuing your answer. Now, I know what's firing in some of your synapses right now. It's like, well, did he just say pursuing your answer? Has he gone over to the dark side? Has he been sucked in by this modern relativism, your truth? No, not at all. The point is, you have to find it. It has to be a result of your search. Your diligently, this is so important to me, I won't rest until I find the answer. To seek at and arrive at God's response to you asking this question of him. That's your answer, because you found it. I can't do any better than the scriptures, nor can anybody in this room. This is where the answer is, and you have to come to the answer. I love the way that Jesus answered one man's question, this very question. Have you, have you ever noticed this? Luke chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's the question. What does the Lord require of me? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And then number two, once you know the answer, pursue it with all you've got. I'm convinced at this point in my life that the purpose of me being here is not to enjoy my life. That's not it. I do have a God-given purpose. It's a mission. And I ought to be pursuing it with such gusto, with such zeal, with such determination and joy that is befitting of a God-given purpose. Can we help you? Is there any way we can help you with answering this question? If you are ready to become a Christian, we would love to listen to your confession and baptize you into Jesus Christ. If there's any other way that we can help you, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Hosanna, you're my king. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation, 
or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.